You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the founder and CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a PR firm that specializes in music tech and innovation. And ever since I launched this podcast in 2019, I found myself looking out for the music innovation seismologists and cosmologists, the people who understand the music industry deeply, but also have an ear to the ground and an eye to the stars, the humble soothsayers who only speak when asked. My PR firm, Rock, Paper, Scissors, is my graduate degree in business, and Music Tectonics is my postgraduate fellowship in the future of music. Our guests are my instructors, and when I stumble onto one willing to share 45 minutes with me, I feel blessed. Today's guest is exactly one of those. Paul McCabe is the Vice President of Global Experience at Roland Corporation. Yes, that Roland. Paul's been with Roland for a few decades, but his story today will bring you from a hidden musical instrument that changed his life to the life-threatening experience of Roland's founder in Japan. You'll hear how music tech changes the course of musical history and why Paul thinks AI is not only not a threat to the music industry, but the gateway for more human creation than ever before. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks very much. A pleasure to be here. We always see great presence from you at NAM, and obviously everyone knows the name Roland. But I'm curious, this is a cool title. You have Global Customer Experience. What exactly is it that you do at Roland, Paul? Yeah, titles are always fun, uh, aren't they? Especially when you're working in global organizations. So um, Global Customer Experience, the, the, the department that I lead, is positioned within R&D. Uh, in Roland, we call it the Innovation Group. And so we work very closely with the business units that uh, plan, design, and, and build our products, our platforms, our services. And uh, for them, we work to bring customer insights, market perspective, trend perspective uh, into their realm uh, to influence uh, their the, the product planning and product development. And at the same time, uh, to the to the larger company outside of product development, we're working to continuously build uh, a, a stronger sense and a stronger view of the context within which the company operates. Um, and running parallel to that, uh, we're you know with with that understanding of the customer in hand, we're working to continuously improve the experience that customers have after uh, they purchase a Roland Boss Vmoda and soon a DW Drum Workshop. A product. That's awesome. You sit at a really cool intersection between the the kind of the community of users uh, and the internal team. It sounds like very much so. Yeah, um, I've I've done many different things in Roland over a long period of time. I've I've been working in musical instruments for nearly nearly forty years uh, in in music technology uh, with Roland for 30, 30 31. Uh, of those years, uh, and then working globally with Roland for more than seven years, uh, based out of Los Angeles. So certainly, from the Roland perspective, I've I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of change, a lot of evolution, uh, but also from the industrial perspective and just the global music making perspective, I've had the good fortune. You stay around long enough, you see a lot of things, and so I've, I've seen a lot of things. I love it. You're the perfect guest for the Music Tectonics podcast. Hey, Paul, let's dive in. How would you describe the state of the musical instrument industry right now? 
Yeah, it's a great first question. And I think probably what I would do first is is just clarify that you know, often when when people, depending on their relationship with musical instruments in the music industry, often what that question comes up, there's either a kind of a stated or an implied connection with the with the larger music industry. And while there's obvious interdependencies and indeed musical instruments and the music industry have been in a symbiotic relationship since the, be- the beginning of time, there's also some really important differences uh, as well. And so I think, you know, with that having been said, looking at the musical instrument industry, um, overall, we've seen the industry globally has seen pretty consistent growth uh, for many, many years now, not triple digit growth, but consistent year over year growth with a few minor inflection points. But then when we the world entered lockdown uh, in 2020, um, for, for many of us, certainly Roland, we experienced near explosive growth in many areas of our business as people either turned to or returned to music making uh, as a pastime that was certainly in the case of electronic instruments and personal digital, often silent experiences, it was kind of the perfect pursuit uh, for a world that was in lockdown. And so through 2020, 2021, I think overall, the industry experienced some tremendous growth. Certainly Roland did. We were very well positioned in a really unfortunate circumstance uh, to, to work to make people's lives better through the products and services that we, that we build and provide. Uh, but what we've seen recently, I think, is as the world has emerged from the chrysalis state as we've as, as we've come out of uh, lockdown, and, and I don't think I'm really saying anything that any of your listeners aren't aware of, but just to put it in context, I think we're all wanting to kind of stretch our wings again and you know be out of doors and be into experiences that were were robbed from us for a couple of years. Absolutely. And so that doesn't you know that doesn't mean that you know, there's been a massive negative impact on the musical instrument business, but we're not in that really explosive growth phase that we were in during the pandemic. And we're just trying to find the, the water's trying to find its level uh, level again, coming out of the pandemic. Overall, the mid and long-term, uh, you know, projections are, are fantastic uh, for, for many, many reasons, which we could talk about. But, uh, but right now it's a little bit of a moment of confusion, I would say. Mm, interesting a curiosity of what's going to happen next. <laughs> well, yeah, and and you know what is that level state? You know what is the balance between uh, experience and being out of the home and 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 kind of the cocooning world that we lived in for the better part of almost three years. Yeah, it's interesting to see different people have different reactions to it too. Some people are like, I, I love my cocoon, or they moved away to some new place and they're doing a whole their lifestyle change, whatever. And other people are like, I can't wait to get out. I'm living my life like I've never lived it before yeah. The, yeah. the pandemic. And and all of that probably has an impact on on music making. But you know, um, another thing that happened during the, the the pandemic was a lot of innovation was tested out. There were a lot of new use cases, a lot of new circumstances, whether it's you know, the need for live streaming and remote events um, and, and certainly how that affected all kind of organizations um, to uh, metaverse experiences and mixed reality and, and a lot of other innovations that just kind of coincidentally happened around the same time as we saw the real emergence of TikTok over the last few years. Mm-hmm. What innovations do you see emerging that are changing the musical instrument field now? 
yeah, well, I, th- I think your, um, your lead-in kind of touched on a few of them uh, that I think are really important f- from our perspective. Overall, uh, connectivity. Uh, connectivity between musicians, connectivity between the instruments that they use and other instruments, which has existed for a while, uh, but also connectivity between instruments and music-making devices and the cloud and cloud-based services. Um, you know, uh, global collaboration, connectivity between musicians from different places and different musical disciplines where distance is no longer a, a, a limiting factor. Uh, I think that's important. Uh, being a little bit more specific to technology, uh, things like wireless technology, you know, anybody who is or has been uh, a musician, you always are a musician if you've stepped in once. But if you have been a musician, you just know uh, how painful cables and cable management in your, in your lives are and whether you're actually playing an instrument or you're front of house or wherever you are you know, cables is just everybody's shoulders go down when you think about cabling things up and hiding cables and managing cables and maintaining them and putting them away. And so the kind of the, the, the presence of wireless technology, whether that's Bluetooth connectivity or Wi-Fi connectivity or other low latency digital wireless uh, technologies, I think that's going to, you know, in some cases, it's going to have a more of a of a of an impact of convenience uh, and and simplifying, but I do think that that when we think about what wireless might mean to recording and production and performance, I think it's likely to have some some more significant impacts uh, over time as well. Um, continuing with connectivity, um, one one of my roles is I'm on the executive board of the of the MIDI Association who are the custodians, along with uh, an organization called AME in Japan, of the MIDI protocol. And for those that aren't aware, MIDI is Musical Instrument Digital Interface. It's been in existence as of, as of earlier this year for 40 years. Uh, and it's, it's what connects instruments to each other and to computers and to other devices and production tools and even video equipment. And for years, um, the MIDI Association and AME have been working on the next step uh, for this protocol, expanding the capacity, expanding the expressivity that can be conveyed across MIDI, expanding the applications that MIDI can impact, and also simplifying connectivity between different devices through bidirectional communication. And we're just on the cusp of MIDI starting MIDI 2.0 starting to appear in commercial products uh, and applications. All of the major operating systems, including Mac OS, uh, very soon Windows through a fantastic open source project, um, Android and Chrome OS um, all already support MIDI 2.0 at an operating system level. And so I think soon we're going to see more devices. Uh, and then, of course, the, 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 big, the big looming presence of machine learning, generative AI, um, and natural language processing as a front end to all of that, I, I think stands to have a profound impact on on creation, artistic creation in general, but also music making. Wow, I think it's great to have somebody like you who has both this, 
multi-decade experience to watch this evolution, to have this key role with the MIDI Association and really understand what's happening there, but also just this top-level view. And so just in a couple of minutes, you mentioned new wireless capabilities, MIDI 2.0 and its ability to take on more capacity and be more expressive, and obviously the AI machine learning world, which we're hearing about on the software side quite a bit too. Of, of those innovations, are there any, anything that stands out that maybe um, you know, a, a novice uh, instrument player might want to know about that maybe they haven't heard yet? What's gonna, what, what are we going to see emerge? What form factors or um, experiences will people who play music first start to see as a result of, types of, of the types of innovations you just mentioned? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think machine learning, generative AI, natural language processing, in the grand scheme of things, I think that, that those, those kind of seen as a suite of disruptive technologies stands to have the greatest kind of widest impact on, on creative experiences and music making. But of course, for many different reasons. Now, thinking specifically of the, of the novice and um, one of your past guests, uh, Tatiana Sirisano from uh, Media has written some great, some great insights uh, on this as well. But one of the realities that we face with music making, and this isn't Roland, this is everybody, is that uh, I think in Tatiana's words, you have to necessarily go through a period of being bad before you can be good uh, <laughs> at anything. And with natural language processing and generative AI potentially being positioned at that kind of front end of a creative experience where the need to have an, uh, an intimate knowledge of the process of music making, uh, you know, in some cases is no longer a barrier because rather than focusing on the process and the steps of the process, you can, you can skip right ahead to the outcome. What is the outcome I want? And as long as I can describe this or, you know, in generative AI terms, if I can engineer prompts that can properly articulate what it is that I'm after from a musical perspective, then generative AI can be that shortcut to get us at least part of the way there. And that's, that's an, that, that will be an extraordinary change because what it does is it creates a path to music making for, you know, really anybody, uh, which hasn't existed uh, before. But that's not to say that, you know, for lack of a better term, traditional music making and music production is going to be completely eliminated. And I think, I think across to, you know, photography where you know, I've got, I've got kids and I've got two daughters that discovered a love of photography uh, through Instagram. And so they were led to the shortcut outcome, um, you know, by experiencing, you know, simple application of filters and whatnot, uh, and AI and machine learning without being aware of it in the Instagram world, and then said, you know, I think I want to know more about how this is done. And I want to be more involved in the process. And I think I would really enjoy that. And that would be a new opportunity for us to have rather than always starting with people that are the, at the very beginning of the journey and doing everything that we can to kind of soften that slope and make it more enjoyable more immediately to now actually work back from the outcome and say, okay, well, you, you, you created something that is uniquely yours in partnership with generative AI. Now let's, you know, let's invite you 
to actually become more part of that process and 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 enjoy what it actually means to be right involved in that performance and the creation of all of that all of that music that you 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 took the shortcut to in the first so it re- you're really saying it's like a gateway for people who may not they may not have i mean as a as a very amateur musician who's been playing music for decades myself it can be very frustrating to start a new instrument and not feel like you can get anything that sounds like what you heard on yeah. on the radio or on Spotify or YouTube or whatever. And so you want that. You want that satisfaction of having something done. But then once you've done it and you say, oh, I do have a musical ability or I am creative or something, you're saying that could just be the beginning. You might actually want to touch it. I, I have a 14-year-old who's doing black and white photography in a darkroom, printing you know, oh, printing stuff, and 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 they love the ability to touch things, and they love the science, and they love feeling like there's that more direct impact. So I totally, I can totally relate to what you're saying with your kids as well, and uh, and it's interesting from your perspective, somebody that's deeply involved in the musical instrument world, to see that AI could do the same for for that. And, and in fact, it reminds me of this. Um, this return to vinyl from a consumer experience, from the listener experience, hand of in where, the air. Yep. yeah, people, hand in, hand in the air. <laughs> people want to touch it, they want to smell it, they want to pick it up, they want to show it to somebody, um, and they want to have the little scratchy sound, and they want to have a collection that they identify with. There's just so much about that experience that's just different than than streaming. So it's interesting to hear you saying that about the musical instrument world too. Well, and that's a great example that you use. And just a little vignette from my own life. Uh, one of my Instagram daughters, who she's now branded as, I don't know that she'll appreciate that. One of my Instagram daughters, um, who's, she's a bit of a kind of a person out of time. She's an ageless uh, kid. She just likes Elvis Presley and, but she also loves Instagram and, and connectivity through mobile devices. And anyway, uh, during during the pandemic, uh, Christmas, she wanted to get a little turntable, one of these little kind of all all integrated uh, little portable turntables. And I'll, I'll be the first to say that I, to my wife, I was really trying to convince her out of it. And I just kept saying to my wife, she just doesn't understand how inconvenient this is, what this is going to be, you know, in the world. She's grown up really only knowing streaming for the most part. Yeah. She didn't even live with compact discs. Um, and so just, it's going to be such a, I think a letdown for her to realize just how impractical, uh, <laughs> listening to vinyl is, but, um, I did eventually give in and Christmas morning we're, we're in our home and I helped her to set up this little turntable. And then she brought out, I'd, we'd moved from Canada six or seven years ago. Uh, this, this bin of vinyls continued to follow me. I just couldn't let it go. So she brought out this record. And uh, I remember the record. It was John Williams' soundtrack to the first Superman movie, uh, which I, I, I'll, I'll love forever. And, and she says, Dad, can we listen to this? And I said, well, okay, I don't know what kind of shape the vinyl's in. We put it on. And as soon as I picked up the tone arm and started to lower it, before I even heard a note, I started to cry. And then when I, when I put the vinyl on, I just, I'm getting emotional now, just thinking about it. It was such a powerful moment of reconnection. To mm. what? Isn't that weird? Like it's so weird. based music listening, and actually, oh, and yeah. just engaging and bringing that music to life in such a simple way, but how profoundly powerful that was. And and so now back to back to subject. Your first question, you know, had me talking about how people are more focused on experience, and then you know later we started talking about now we've got a chance to skip ahead to the outcome. That's where we see this kind of nexus of opportunity. Is okay. Well, 
on in this part of your life, you're all about experience and doing things and hands on and, and kind of celebrating being free from pandemic. And over here, you know, you've got this newfound fascination with music making. And so how can we bring these two together and inspire you to kind of explore the process of it a little bit more? Wow. Well, we've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to dig in a little bit deeper. You've talked about being connected to your user customer base and internally, so you have to think about these things. I'd love to talk a little bit more. We'll be right back. Are you ready for Music Tectonics pre-conference event, The Shock Before the Quake? It's happening online September 13th from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Pacific. That's 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern or 5 to 8 p.m. UK. Mark Mulligan of Media Research will kick us off talking about the deep trends shaping music and innovation. If you've ever seen him present, you know Mark's going to bring an incredible slide deck full of data and insights powered by Media Research. Then, get a first look at where the most cutting-edge new ideas are bubbling up. Hear pitches from the semi-finalists in our Swimming with Narwhals startup competition and their feedback from the jury, including Juliet Rolnack, the VC investor at BDMI, and Tracy Maddox, the chief commercial officer of Downtown Music. And they'll stick around for a Q&A with the audience. Now, how can you be a part of this event? Get a ticket for the Music Tectonics Conference at musictectonics.com. Everyone who registers for the conference gets into the online pre-conference. So go there now, musictectonics.com. Okay, we're back. And Paul, I, I had so much fun right before the break. What great stories you were sharing about your experience with your own kids and, and vinyl and so forth. And also the parallel world of uh, how, that, how, how the, the, the digitization of everything may eventually lead people back to using musical instruments. Now, you're at this interesting crossroads with Roland, with a musical instrument company. As a company, how do you guys think about the fact that people can go into some web-based or app-based thing and put in prompts and at least think that they're making some songs, some rudimentary songs or, or melodies or things like that. How, how do you guys integrate what that's going to look like in the future in what Roland becomes as an instrument company? Well, yeah, and that's the, the $64 billion question, isn't it? <laughs> it's, um, you know, what, it, what is the convergence of these two and uh, these, these two realms and and what are the opportunities they present and i think you know first of all from the perspective of roland we've been very non-discriminatory with what we label as music making and music creativity and so you know first i think you know the it's incumbent upon us to recognize that whether you're making music by plugging physical instruments to some recording apparatus and doing multi-track recordings and then going into a production post-production and mixing and mastering process before you know what you've created reaches anybody or you're on your mobile device tapping away uh, at an app and and uh, interacting with prompts to create something they're they're both legitimate they're both creating something that didn't exist before the the pathways to the, the outcome are very, very different. But I think we have to celebrate that and, and recognize that. Um, and then put the hand out and say, you know, how, how about, would you be interested in taking another step on that path? You know, that must've been so enjoyable. And now like an Instagram photo, there's something that exists in the world that didn't exist before you took those steps. And uh, there really can be so much joy that comes from becoming more physically engaged uh, in that process and, 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 and history shows how important music and music making and music celebration is, 
to 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 music and culture, or sorry, to culture and just um, yeah, the environment that we live in. And so you know, take that step with us. But then we have to think about what that bridge looks like. Practically speaking, we have to think about what that bridge looks like. And I think just take a step back. I think you know whether whether you're Roland or whether you're another manufacturer, whether you make software or whatever, and you want to invite people into music making, we all have to recognize that there are common point pain points that we face. We uh, and they're all perception. It's the perception of music making by those that aren't involved uh, in music making, hmm. and and to the the uninitiated, music making first of all is seen as something that requires a special gift. Uh, you either have the talent, you have the gift, or you don't. And and we've all been in those conversations, and maybe we've been initiating conversation where we're saying, "Oh, don't ask me to sing. I'm not a singer. I could never sing. I don't. I don't. That's not my thing. I'll be over here, uh, you know, playing golf. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a singer. But that's that's a that's a very real pain point. Um, music making is seen as something that would, that demands a lot of time. Right, the ten thousand hours of mastery, and whether we're thinking about it exactly in those terms, doesn't matter. It's it, you know, I think we've all grown up with that innate knowledge that music is just one of those things that we're going to suck at for a long time. Music mm-hmm. making before we get to a point where we're proud of anything that we're doing, let alone ready to share that with with somebody else. Not to mention mastering cable management. Well, oh, cable man, back to the, yes, absolutely, back to the cable management. Thank you for that connection. <laughs> connection, um, but uh, it's also seen as being somewhat of a luxury. That the music making to those that are outside of the music making experience is, is seen as being a relatively expensive uh, pastime because there's investments in the instruments and and the accessories for instruments. There's investments in lessons, um, you know, which are seen as as you know in many cases to be expensive and 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 so that's a that's another pain point. And then finally, for, for for companies like like Roland, where our focus is music technology, I think to those that are sitting outside looking in on music technology, music technology is seen as somewhat confounding, really sophisticated. You know, I can I can barely get joy out of my mobile phone on a daily basis. Don't act, ask me to operate a, a synthesizer or an electronic drum kit. And the reason why I, I kind of lay all of those out and just have those be commonly understood. Um, is that when we look to disruptive technologies, uh, foundational technologies like generative AI, there's a possibility that generative AI can actually be applied to each one of the, we've already talked about how it can be applied to um, the perception that you have to be bad before you can be, you can be good. But looking at each one of those pain points, I think it may have a role to play in being a bit more of an enabler uh, in, in our space. Nice. So as that happens, as new technologies emerge and new creators emerge, I'm curious, are you seeing any new styles or new scenes or new genres or even sounds that are emerging as we see this evolution of technology? I mean, I know it's happening, but I'm curious from your seat, are there any that, that stand out that you sort of see as, oh, that's happening because of this shift that happened in the industry. Um, you know, I can't wait to see what happens with MIDI 2.0, you know, but I'm curious, is there anything that comes to mind for you along those lines? Well, it's, it really is a wonderful question and it actually speaks very close to the heart of, of our brand because 
Roland's been in the good fortune of of being one of those cultural drivers and contributors uh, over over the 50, 51 years of our history. And I think about um, like uh, the TR-808 uh, rhythm composer uh, that certainly wasn't designed to inspire the genres of hip hop and influence R&B and um, and uh, electronica uh, as it has. But if you look at at the course of history and you look at the number of songs that have been written that quote the 808 uh, in the lyrics and, and mm-hmm. cite its influence and its value to music making, you know, there's an example of 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 an instrument profoundly influencing music and music genres and subgenres. Uh, the TB three hundred three bass line, acid, acid house, and all of the the subgenres that spawn off of that, you know, came largely as a result of this this little tiny pocket sized synthesizer that was actually designed to replace a bass player for little performing solo and duo acts and holiday inns around the world. Wow! And suddenly Richie Houghton and others get a hold of it, and and we have music new music styles emerging and. And so, you know, I appreciate the fact that you recognize that that connection between the the technology and music. I mean, we can go back to the to, to the to the classical era and the great composers and how musical instrument designers and builders were trying to keep up with the vision of the great composers as they wanted pianos that played below an eighty-eight note scale uh, for you know Wagner and other other composers like that, and they had new yeah new sounds in their head that. They, they needed instruments to to inspire. And then you had the reverse happening. Once these instruments existed, they started to inspire new works. And that's that symbiotic relationship. So I, um, yeah, I'm a fan of so much music. Um, I wouldn't want to kind of narrow in on, you know, one specific genre. You know, what I, what I do think that we see is um, acoustic, uh, sounds um, becoming more integrated with, you know, clearly electronic sounds and there being something new uh, mm-hmm. in between. And whether that's in soundtrack music or hip hop and R&B, I think that's important. But one that I'm uh, one trend that I'm kind of on the sidelines, you know, wanting to see uh, how this might blossom, though, is with music making through the technology becoming more accessible to more people around the world, including people living in developing countries. Mm-hmm. And I think we're already seeing this. I don't think I'm being prophetic with this, but I'd love, I want to, I'm look, looking forward to seeing how this expands, but how regional folk music um, starts to become much more present in global pop music because now people living in these regions that are intimately familiar with their local folk music have a path to having kind of new music heard on a global scale. And whether that's because they've got an app on their mobile phone, like Roland's Zen Beats app, that they can now make music on a mobile device uh, that that blends you know, their folk music with electronics and hip hop and R&B and techno and whatnot, and then become something new. Um, or whether it just gives them the ability to to record and then share something very local and very quaint and very folky with a much larger audience. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. I think about artists that that have been pioneers in this. It's, I think about Peter Gabriel. Um, uh, an act that I've loved for years is Deep Forest, 
uh, out of Belgium who did just that. They, they went, you know, every album is reflects a new local folk culture that's kind of brought to life in, in a, in a modern electronic realm. So that's one of the things personally that I'm really looking forward nice. to. Nice. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, as you're talking, I know this doesn't make sense, but this is Music Tectonics. We talk about creativity and innovation and tech and the business side of it as well. But it brings to mind this, one of my favorite business books is Good to Great by Jim Collins, which talks about, you know, what makes companies great over a long period. We're talking hundreds of years instead of, you know, a handful of years. And he talks about technology as an accelerator. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting thinking about your application of what will technology do for local folk music forms. And in a way, technology in this context is not just an accelerator, but it's a bridge. Even the genres that you mentioned, the, the hip hop and the electronic music, in a way, that's a bridge from one part of the world to another part of the world. And these folk melodies can ride the technology and those electronic genres into other parts of the world, which will be super interesting to see. And, you know, it's part of this long, long, centuries-long process of, of the shrinking of the planet, too, which is, I think, another great source of innovation. You know, it's not just the technology, but it's the combination of different sets of cultural values, musical values, musical aesthetics, and, and so forth. So I love that you brought that into the mix. Well, and you mentioned good to great. I should I should mention and, and up to you as to whether this is something we explore in, in this context, but there is a really interesting, very meaningful connection between Jim Collins and Good to Great and Roland. Oh really? Um, I'd love to share with you. I want to hear it. What is it? All right. All right. So <laughs> Let's go. Um Roland was founded by uh, Ikutaro Kekahashi in nineteen seventy two. And uh prior to founding Roland, Mr. K uh, established a company called Ace Tone, which created the Rhythm Ace drum machine and some other really interesting uh, products. Then before that, uh, Mr. K started Hammond uh, Organ in Japan. Wow. But then before that, uh, he was working, he had, a, a, I'll skip a couple of parts, but let's say he was mm -hmm. working, uh, he owned an appliance and watch repair shop in Osaka. And Mr. K in post-war Japan, he got he got really ill, and he actually spent three years in a hospital uh, in in Japan, um, trying to. He had a problem with his lungs, and during that time in the hospital, he he taught himself things like how to build a television. And he built a television when there was only a few in Japan and, and NHK was the national broadcaster. And he would have the staff from the hospital kind of gather around his, his bed for the evening broadcast of the NHK uh, news on this kind of home-built television. Um, but uh, kind of running parallel to that uh, in, 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 in America. And this was the story that Jim told in the good to great series. He, he, he used, um, Merck, the pharmaceutical company as one of his 10 X, uh, companies and Merck had reached a point, And this would have been, I guess, in the fifties where they had actually developed a medication that could, uh, that could cure, uh, an, an illness on a global scale. Uh, but they'd failed to commercialize it and and they were they were at this point of decision and i guess these pharmaceutical companies would have to make decisions around the ip where they would either shelve it and hope that conditions would change in the future and they would bring this thing back to life and try and commercialize it they would sell it off at a loss to another company and just cut their losses or in Merck's case the board decided that you know there's there's a global need and our mission as a company our vision is to 
prolong the life of human beings, the healthy, productive life of human beings. I don't remember exactly their mission statement. So in any, any case, the board essentially decided to, to give it away. And one of the first recipients of this medication uh, was Japan. Uh, the drug was streptomycin, the cure for tuberculosis. Mr. Mm. K was one of the first recipients in Japan. Holy cow. And he was out of the hospital about 30 days later after starting his treatment on, on, this, on this drug from Merck. So good to great. If, if Merck hadn't made that decision to stay true to their vision and purpose, really good chance that Roland wouldn't even exist today. Wow. So I had the chance to tell that story back to uh, to, to Jim Collins' team, and uh, and he was just blown away by it. Oh, that's awesome! And, uh, yeah. So there's your little. Your I little, love it. It's uh, little more convergences. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. You know, we're going to take a, another quick break, and when we come back, we heard a little bit about Roland's origins. I'd like to hear a little bit about, about yours, Paul. We'll be right back. The news cycle of the music industry and innovation in particular is accelerating at such a fast pace, it can be hard to keep up. That's why I launched Rock Paper Scanner, a free newsletter you can get in your inbox every Friday morning. Check out bit.ly slash rpscanner. That's bit.ly slash rpscanner. I scan hundreds of outlets for you from the music trades to the tech blogs, from the music gear mags to lifestyle outlets so that you don't have to. I handpick everything music tech, including industry revenue numbers, AI, cool new user tools, the live music and recording landscapes, partnerships and acquisitions, and everything else a Music Tectonics podcast listener would want to know. Open a browser right now and punch in bit.ly slash rpscanner to sign up right now. Go ahead, hit pause and go to bit.ly slash rpscanner or find the episode's blog post on musictectonics.com and find that link. Happy scanning, but for now, happy listening. Okay, we're back, and this has been such a fun conversation going down all sorts of side turns, and I'm really loving it. But, Paul, we haven't asked you, how did you get into the industry? So um, I think perhaps like many, not all but many, uh, I was a musician in school. I played trumpet uh, um, the, in about, I want to say about 1977, 78. I discovered this, this uh, kind of a storage room in the, in, in the music department where we used to put the band's chairs. We'd have to stack them in this room when the choirs came in. But there was always this shelf that had stuff kind of covered up under this tarp. And uh, so one day Don't I decided lift to the tarp. Tour. Don't lift the tarp. Lift. I lifted the tarp. I did. <laughs> I lifted the tarp and such began my journey. So under the tarp was a TAC 3440 open reel four track uh, uh, recorder and a Roland complete system 100 uh, synthesizer. So it had the, the base unit, the expander, the sequencer, the analog sequencer, the mixer with the reverb uh, on it. Uh, it was all there and nobody was using it. And um, I was, I had really kind of gotten into bands like Devo, Kraftwerk, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, early Depeche Mode, Blanc Mange, Thomas Dolby, uh, bands like this, uh, I was I was starting to listen to. Uh, and I thought, wow, I, I, I want, I, so I started, I plugged it in and kind of no, nobody was there to teach me. I started to figure out how to use this. So a Roland synthesizer was kind of my first step in. And um, from there, I made the decision that I wanted to be a rock star and I wanted to be Jeff Downs from Asia or Rick Wakeman from Yes or 
Tony Banks from Genesis. And so I went to music college, uh, studied a combination performance, arranging and orchestration. Uh, had to leave before graduation because I, I needed to get out into the work world and I had an opportunity to get a part-time job. It was in the stock market. I uh, No disrespect to anybody working in the fields of finance and investments. It was not for me, definitely not for me. Uh, I was playing in an original band uh, at the time and uh, we were rehearsing in downtown Vancouver where I, was, where, where I grew up, uh, British Columbia. And uh, I would wait at a local music store uh, in downtown Vancouver for other members of the band to get off of work and then we would go and rehearse. And this was four nights a week. And one day I was in the music store and one of the staff came up and said, you're here all the time and you know more about this gear than we do. Why don't you just work here? I'm leaving. Why don't you work here? I'll put in a wow. good word. And I never, it had never occurred to me. Hmm. Uh, and I thought about it for about an hour and I came back and said, how do I do this? And uh, long story short, I was, I was hired to work in a music store. I spent about seven years uh, working in, in, uh, in two great uh, music stores, uh, Long & McQuaid and Tom Lee Music in, in Vancouver. But I always had Roland on my heart and uh, was given an opportunity to come and work as a product specialist for Roland in Canada. And this would have been 1992. Uh, and so once I was in Roland, I, I knew I'd, this was, I'd found my I found my my career and I just I said I just wanted to keep learning. I'll learn. I'll I'll say yes to any opportunity I'm given even if I don't know how to do it. I'll just trust that I can figure it out and I went from being a product specialist I moved into marketing and product management. Somehow I was given the opportunity to be the chief operating officer of the company and then I spent the almost 10 years as the president and CEO of our Canadian company. Um which was amazing. And I learned a lot. Uh, I went through the Lehman Brothers crisis. My first day on the job was December of 2000, uh, uh, sorry, January 1st of 2009, right in the wake of the Lehman Brothers crisis. So I had to suddenly learn how to do things like protect balance sheets and liquidate inventory and, wow. you know, manage expenses. Anyway, not, not what you were thinking about when you're waiting for band members to rehearse. Not when I was, no, no, it's, it's, yeah, one of those twisty turny journeys that you couldn't have, that's couldn't great have though, kind of pre-articulated, but, and you did, from, you did, no, go ahead. I was just going to say from there, um, uh, Roland was, we were a publicly traded company. We were taken private in about 2013. And then part of the goal of taking the company private was to, um, bring a, a larger sense and a presence of globalization. Uh, into the organization. And so looking at my background in product and customer and storytelling and technology, I was I was asked to come and be a part of building the company's first global marketing organization. And that brought me to Los Angeles. And then I was asked to kind of parlay that experience into building a customer experience and a user experience organization. And here I am today. Nice. Wow. Well, it's so interesting when you look back to see the thread is it's so present the whole time. You didn't know it in the early days, but it started to emerge and it's super cool to say. See, well, we only have a couple minutes left and maybe we should just ask a little bit about this marketing side, this community building side. What are what are the best ways to market new instruments today and how do you build community with with Roland customers? Just to give us a little bit of that tactical industry side before we close out for the day. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, I'll, I'll start with community because that's obviously uh, near and dear to the work that we do on customer experience. And, you know, I think that one of the things that we've recognized is that, of course, community takes many different shapes and forms. 
But from our perspective, one of the important distinctions is communities that we own versus communities that we participate in. And, you know, if I were to choose to lean into one over the other, I would be leaning into the communities that we participate in as a responsible, contributing citizen of that community, where those communities have formed around shared interests and whether those are shared interests around an instrument or a music style or a location or some interesting combination of all of these things and more. I think, I think Roland finding pathways into these communities, building trust uh, and contributing as a valuable member with a unique perspective is a real sincere connection uh, and a very authentic connection with fans of our brand and people that maybe aren't even really aware of our brand. That is, that is uniquely powerful. It's not to say that there isn't place for own communities because I think that there are, um, but I think that increasingly own communities probably are more valuable around very, very, very definable problems to solve. And, you know, for example, I think about communities that can form around a single post in a forum where people are discussing the best, the best way to do something or to solve something. And that's community as well. And I think, you know, brands hosting that kind of conversation and facilitating that kind of conversation, uh, there's definitely a place uh, for that as well. Um, in terms of marketing, uh, where to start on that one? I'll, just just real quickly. I mean, if you're connected with your customers, if you're connected with fans of your brand um, sincerely and authentically, uh, and they know it, uh, that it's sincere and authentic, um, and the the solutions, the products, the services, the applications that that you're bringing to life are either a direct outcome from recognizing an opportunity or a problem to solve um, in the communities that you're in with these fans, or they're inspired by things that you've heard, uh, and now now you can innovate. Um, when when that is kind of your path to market, marketing becomes largely largely consequential. Um, it's it's really more about building awareness that this thing now exists, that you've recognized there's a need for or an opportunity for, in 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 creative communities, and and now it's really about building awareness as opposed to persuading people that they should try this thing. Um, it sounded really grand when I said it. What? Well, you I know what? I mean, abs- I mean, what it is is you're really and it, and it really. It ties in well with your career trajectory too, having been in marketing and now in this customer experience piece, and going from one Canada, one country to national to to, to global. You know, like all, that that all kind of shows the same sort of virtuous cycle. Like if you build stuff that your community wants or that you think they'll respond well to, you just have to communicate to it. So that becomes the marketing, and and I think is what you're saying in a way. It's it's really more of a, a an ongoing conversation and somehow product development has to fit into that conversation as well. For sure. And I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that we've arrived anywhere on that. We see, we see that entire, that entire journey is very much a continuum and, you know, we're committed to improvement. Um, we will make mistakes from time to time, but we'll always try and fall forward uh, from those. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very much a continuum of building relationship with the community and then serving them in the ways that you, that we uniquely can as Roland. Amazing. This has been Dimitri Vitsa with Paul McCabe, the VP of Global Customer Experience at Roland Corporation. 
Oh, Paul, this has been such a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on Music Tectonics. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know we do free monthly online events that you, our lovely podcast listeners, can join? Find out more at musictectonics.com. And while you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. Everything we do explores the seismic shifts that shake up music and technology, the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform. Connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it. We'll be back again next week, if not sooner. You're listening to Music Tectonics.